And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Hopefully you're not near uh, Tonga. There's a major volcano erupting in Tonga, which is in the middle of nowhere in the South Pacific. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, we have a really interesting show for everyone this morning, or this afternoon, or this evening, because we're going to be launching phase two of our open hailing frequencies experiment. As you who are followers of the show undoubtedly remember, over the last month plus a few days, we have been communicating with extraterrestrials. Well, technically I should not say that. We are communicating with someone. The evidence indicates they're extraterrestrials. And what's that evidence? Well, um, during the first test transmissions on the evening of this uh, of, of the show on December 4th, about two minutes after uh, Jimmy Blanchett, who had loaned us his very high-power radio telescope transmitter there in the northern deserts of Arizona uh, near Prescott, he had loaned us this facility, and uh, he and uh, David Sarita put together a very interesting coded sequence um, of sounds and signals and frequencies and geometry and even some scanned imagery, which we added to over the month and we repeatedly transmitted on the weekends of the um, 4th, the 11th, the 18th, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, the day after Christmas. And on that first transmission, which was the evening of the 4th, starting about a half an hour before the other side of midnight comes on the air. Uh, Jimmy began his transmissions, and about two minutes after he began, UFOs, UAPs, vehicles, craft, uh, you know, anti-gravity something started popping in and out of hyperspace directly over the antenna, literally photobombing the sky um, against which the antenna system was pointing, which because we had designed this beforehand, was uh, aimed at Amuamua, this first interstellar visitor, which went zipping through the solar system about four years ago in late 2017, in October. And uh, tonight, and when we started like a month ago, it's so far out there, it was about two and a half billion miles from the sun. Two and a half billion miles plus 93 million miles in in essence, from the Earth, and that's almost the distance to the planet Neptune, which is about 2.7 billion. So, it's way out there. The light travel time, which also equates to the speed of radio transmissions in the Einsteinian limited relativistic universe in which we mainstream science thinks we are constrained, the one-way travel time is about 3.7 hours, so you multiply that by two, it's almost eight hours to send a signal from the Earth and get a return. Well, we got return signals within minutes of Jimmy starting the transmission, and UFOs showed up. So that kind of knocks into a cocked hat that we're dealing with someone who is constrained by the limitations of mainstream terrestrial science circa the 21st century. In other words, whoever is zipping around um, and darting in and out of hyperspace because these objects that appeared on his low-light-level uh, television camera uh, literally in the antenna beam between the telescope and Muamua, you know, in the atmosphere, probably a mile or two upstairs up above the antenna, were photobombing the exact precise aiming point of the antenna itself. So they wanted to be seen. Furthermore, they did not transit across the sky. They didn't mimic airplanes or, you know, aerial vehicles that we create or even uh, uh, the purported, you know, vehicles of the secret space program. They literally popped in and out of somewhere, and one could say a higher dimension. And what's really interesting is that the simultaneous radio signals that uh, we received um, have this peculiar aspect that they appear to be 
very, 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 very high-speed burst-type transmissions, kind of like they're incredibly speeded up relative to the time stream which we are all inhabiting here tonight. Again, another potential hallmark of a transmission from another dimension where time flows differently. These are things that we're kind of exploring. So um, that was what started all of this. And every weekend thereafter, we would modify the transmission somewhat and send it uh, not only to Oumuamua, but there was one night where we intended to solely focus on the moon for a whole bunch of reasons that uh, are too complicated to get into tonight. And it was on that transmission sequence that David uh, marked in his uh, frequency analysis, and we'll have him go through how he does that, some numbers which immediately looked incredibly familiar. And uh, one of them was the speed of light, uh, slight variance from the current canonical mainstream speed of light, which, of course, as you know, in relativity is supposed to be constant. <clears throat> the speed of light is not constant. It actually varies as the physics varies. And there are a very long history of experiments to determine, to measure the speed of light. And they're not exactly all over the map, but there's definitely an up and down sweep through decade after decade of different scientists, different physicists, different experimental groups using different techniques to measure the speed of light. And unlike uh, relativity's insistence that it's constant, um, going back to the uh, ill-interpreted uh, Michelson-Morley experiment, the speed of light is not constant. And any decent physicist, even in a high school physics laboratory, can easily now, with lasers and all that, measure this. Um, what we found was, or what David found, was that if he adjusted the number that came in for a variable speed of light, they, whoever they were at the other end of the phone, I'm using this uh, term loosely, were sending us the speed of light. Well, in, in normal three-dimensional mainstream science, the moon is about one and a quarter light seconds away from the Earth. That's how long it takes a radio wave sent from the Earth to get to the moon, um, give or take, because the moon, of course, is also not exactly the same distance every time you would do this. It's in an elliptical orbit. But this particular night, whoever was getting our transmissions answered with A, the speed of light corrected slightly for the real one at the moment of transmission. And the other number they sent us, which is really extraordinary, was when David went through his calculations, the number 56 popped out. What? 56? What the heck is 56? Well, when he and I talked, um, I immediately went, oh my God, because my memory, which sometimes is better than others, instantly popped out that 56 was associated with an archaeological feature found, you know, centuries ago called the Aubrey Holes. They were not found by James Aubrey. They were named after him for some obscure reason. And the most recent mainstream scientific analysis of those holes, which really are large, they're several feet across, several feet deep, they're, they're more than holes, they're almost like foundations in the chalk of the Salisbury Plain. Um, the latest model says that they originally held 56 bluestones which are now a feature of Stonehenge much closer to the center. And the model says that those bluestones originally part of phase one uh, of the building of Stonehenge. They were later uprooted and moved to an inner circle for reasons that are not kind of really apparent. At least they're not apparent to me. Fortunately, tonight we have a guest, a splendid expert, who enforced, uh, in fact uh, informed us and we did a program several weeks ago on this, that those 56 holes used to be the sockets for the 56 bluestones, marking the phase one of the Stonehenge Astronomical Observatory devoted to the moon. So let me kind of reiterate, 
We send a modern 21st century radio transmission to the moon containing a whole bunch of constants and frequencies and, and hyperdimensional, you know, thingies. And what we get back is a reference, absolutely unequivocal reference to A, speed of light, and B, the original phase one of Stonehenge, which is the oldest surviving ancient sacred site monument uh, observatory dedicated in terms of modern analysis, deconvolving its usages and its purpose to the moon, which of course tells us, tells me, I don't want to speak for everyone, that uh, whoever we're talking to, um, A, they're probably not on a muamua. B, they're probably a lot closer to us than uh, anyone would have imagined. I mean, if you have UFOs popping in and out over the antenna, they must be able to know what we're doing and are responding. But the, the moon stuff means maybe some of them are hanging out on the moon and they were for the benefit of the slow learners in class, i.e. us, connecting the moon and our transmissions with the most ancient human observations of the moon conducted from this remarkable monument in Britain. Stonehenge. So that's when we kind of among ourselves, Jonathan and David and me and some other folks, Maria, we all kind of thought, wouldn't it be cool if we were to set up another set of transmissions and this time start with transmitting from the center of this ancient astronomical observatory, the most ancient known in the world. And Maria, if I'm wrong, you will correct me. And that's what we're going to be doing. And the, tonight's program is kind of devoted to a further analysis of what we've got in terms of signals. And then a we're going to brief everyone all over the world who's listening to us live tonight in what we're going to do in phase two, which involves Stonehenge, but a lot more. And we're going to describe how you guys out there can participate. And it's all very, very simple. Um, and we'll go through all the steps and what needs to be done. And we've got several weeks before we're going to do this. We're looking now at uh, February 4th, the morning of February 4th, which is just after dawn in Britain, when Maria is going to initiate phase two of our um, open hailing frequencies enterprise mission experiment. But before I introduce all the gang, because we have a lot of the team members with us tonight, I do want to go through a couple of news items, uh, both old and new. Um, first of all, the tsunami alert, which was posted this morning for the northern west coast of California, thankfully has been canceled. There is a news item there, number one. Um, apparently on Friday, um, our time, there was a major volcanic eruption in the uh, Tonga Islands, far, far out in the Pacific, and serious concern um, that the underwater volcano would uh, cause a tsunami, which happens when you displace a lot of water, either through earthquakes or volcanic explosions or pyroclastic activity or you know any of that good stuff. And so there was major concerns. If you click on that link, you'll see a whole bunch of videos and still images of all kinds of shaken water and crashing waves and up and down the Northern California coast, you know, parking lots disarranged, cars kind of moved around by floodwaters, uh, choppy waves, uh, piers destroyed. But, but a big one, a big tsunami, a, a killing tsunami did not come ashore. And so um, this evening, the, the tsunami alert was canceled. I mean, it takes for hours and hours at the speed of sound in water, which is 600 and some odd miles per hour, about the speed of a high-speed modern uh, jet, to make its way across a vast ocean like the Pacific. So you can have an event, and then many, many hours later, um, as we've been discussing vis-a-vis -vis La Palma on the East Coast, uh, you can have the uh, tsunami you know, come ashore and wreck havoc. Well, the good news is it's not going to happen. But the larger question is, is this part of a worldwide increase in earthquake and volcanic activity? And that portends another set of questions like, is this due to a increase in the background physics? Or 
is this somebody meddling? Is this someone using hyperdimensional torsion field technology to literally intervene in a very complicated geopolitical scenario where there's a whole bunch of stuff going on all over the planet simultaneously, pandemic notwithstanding, and is uh, tinkering with geology and with major, quote, natural potential disasters, part of someone's, um, shall we say, offensive against humanity? And are the answers we've been getting part of a larger set of answers to how do we get into this predicament and do we have help out there? And are they going to, in some kind of prime directive fashion, are they going to intervene? Or even more intriguing, have they already intervened? Because remember, for months and months and months since September, we posted every week on the show, our first news item was all about La Palma with the live links to the you know, seismic uh, observations and the geological analyses and the live webcams and all that. And then in late December, La Palma just suddenly pooped out. It just kind of quit. And I'm wondering, because I kind of wonder about these things, was that due to it just ran out of steam, pun intended, or did in fact someone use a suppressive hyperdimensional technology to quietly eliminate that problem um, as part of a larger campaign of doing things in a very non-obvious prime directive fashion to try to um, bring some help to our side, to humanity that seems to be facing major, uh, shall we say, decision points on a whole range of subjects at this critical time in the evolution of the physics the background physics, which, of course, because of the alignment, the precession alignment with the center of the galaxy, once every, give or take, 26,000 years, physics is now up. You can't surf if surf is not up. And so there, there, there is a background for plausibly um, asking the question, um, is someone, if we're in communication with someone out there, is someone else out there doing very dastardly things in the nursery because they do not have our best intentions at heart. Obviously, that's a question we cannot answer tonight, but we're going to get into the very positive decoding of whoever is talking to us. And again, there are a range of possibilities. I don't think it's a muamua. I think it's someone a lot closer. And when I say closer, that means maybe through hyperspace as opposed to a radio wave transiting four hours out and four hours back from a little speck in the dark, which is fleeing the sun that did provocatively come down from the constellation of Lyra. Uh, I talked with Chris Knowles a couple, three days ago. You may remember that uh, Chris Knowles runs something called the Sacred Sun website, where he delves into the symbology surrounding all kinds of public events, not the least of which are the release of Hollywood movies. And I've had a number of people sending me emails on on this new major film that appeared on Netflix called Don't Look Up, which ostensibly, first level, is about a major comet going to smash into the earth and destroy all of us. Fiction, fiction, fiction alert. Item number two, that's supposed to be a cover for a more real and longer-term problem facing humanity, which is global warming. And when I talked with Chris, I said, I want you to take a look at this and you know, look for telltale symbol, symbols that you've seen in other places, because my feeling is that even the global warming aspect of the plot is a cover story for something for us that we delve in even more intriguing. And the reaction of the president and the public and the networks. And I mean, it's, it's really kind of a tour de force. It came out of nowhere. There was no advance warning that this movie, which is really an A-list movie. I mean, come on. Meryl Streep plays the president. Three guesses who she's supposed to really be. Then you've got uh, Leonard DiCaprio, who plays the mad, not-so-mad scientist. His assistant is Jennifer Lawrence. I mean, come on. It just there, you know, in terms of the of the cast, it's like pay attention. And then there's the plot 
And then there's what's going on with the Pentagon and UFOs and disclosure rumbling out there in the dark and then art broadcast transmissions and these extraordinary coded responses. And you put it all together, mixed well, 2022 could in fact be the most important year in modern, forget American, human history. So with that as kind of a prelude, let me get to a couple of other news items. If you look at item number two and item number three, these are the standard web links we've been posting. Item number two is the web blog. Uh, Fact of the matter is when you click on that, you have to refresh because it doesn't refresh automatically and there's new news beyond what the headline says in item number two. So just when you click on it, you know, refresh it, and that will give you the latest news on on web. I I wondered, you know, myself why, after all these major deployments, it's going to take them now another, like, you know, five and a half months to set this whole thing up so it's a functioning, working, stunningly cutting-edge observatory. Read the latest couple of items when you refresh the blog, because they talk about how they take this 18-segment hexagonal mirror and turn it into one unified 21, 22-foot wide primary mirror for the telescope. And to give you one example, each of the mirrors has several what they call actuators on the back. They're used to tilt and pan and, you know, defocus the mirrors. And they're little tiny electric motors. And what they do is they move the mirrors themselves, these hexagonal, you know, um, segments, by spinning a mirror and moving a screw through a certain small amount of distance. It turns out that because they ultimately have to determine the curvature of this mirror to the order of millionths of an inch when they combine all the 18 hexagonal segments into a smooth, overlapping, huge, single primary mirror telescope, it takes them a full day running at high speed to move one of the mirrors one millimeter. An entire day, 24 hours. That shows you the incredible fine-tuning capability and why it's going to take them months and months to do all the adjustments and they have to take pictures of each adjustment because they didn't have the Um, ability to to put other sensors on the telescope that would measure wavelengths of light like lasers and interferometers and all that that you can do in a terrestrial lab with a big telescope. So they literally have to take a series of images. And the first images, they're not even going to show us because it would make the public freak out, apparently. At least that's their reasoning. I think they should be making everything public but they will see like 18 separate stars when they focus on one star because the individual 18 segments have to be overlaid on each other, like image stacking in a program you might download from the internet if you're an amateur astronomer and you take pictures. So it's going to take a very, 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 very long time, you know, doing it day by day by day, moving these little mirrors by fractions of a millimeter at a time and then taking data, taking pictures and seeing by trial and error, are we close to what we want? And it's a lot of pictures, a lot of trial and error, and it's the simplest way to do this without encumbering the spacecraft, which is already the most complex um, deployable telescope or spacecraft ever launched by itself. Um, And tomorrow night, I have a surprise. I'm going to upload another Uh, image that's going to absolutely rivet you and which is going to call up all kinds of very interesting emotions and we'll just leave it there I will do that tomorrow night as we intro tomorrow night's show item number three that is where is the web telescope that one you don't have to really refresh it refreshes automatically item number four I just thought this was so amazingly cool because in all of the public interest in web the Chinese space program as you know not only has a spacecraft roving around on the far side of the moon, it also has a spacecraft uh, on the surface of Mars that is a wrong rover. And then it has an orbiter called Tianwen, um, 
which means technically, you know, questions of heaven orbiting the planet Mars. And it apparently has two or three little deployable subspacecraft where they literally eject one of these little canisters, which basically is nothing but a camera platform. And as it recedes from the main, you know, mothership, the Tianwen uh, spacecraft, which carried the Zhurong rover into Mars orbit, they take pictures of their mothership, the, the orbiter, against the backdrop of Mars. That's what item number four is. And take a look at that picture. There's something really intriguing about that picture of Mars set against the blackness of space compared to item number five, which although it has nothing to do with Mars in space, it does have a lead image, which is posted at the top of its article. And that's a, that's a photograph taken by NASA. Just compare those two pictures. The one taken by the Chinese, which is in, in, in the image number, uh, I'm sorry, item number four, and then the image which leads off on the article for item number five, and compare the color in those two Mars images taken from orbit. They're not the same. In fact, as I said to Ron Gerbrun, who's with us tonight, um, what's so intriguing and endearing about the Chinese image is that it looks exactly, in terms of color, in terms of the pastel nature of the color, in terms of the salmon color, exactly like Mars looked through Percival Lowell's telescope when Robin and I, back in 2003, when Mars was closer than it has been in something like 60,000 years, by a few miles. Uh, we looked through the Lowell telescope, and there was Mars swimming in the dark, you know, through the Earth's atmosphere, which causes scintillation and, you know, burbling and shimmer of the image and things don't stand still except momentarily. But the color of Mars seen from Earth through a big telescope is not red, it's not crimson, it's not fire engine, it's pale salmon. And the only mission in all the last 50 years of NASA and other nations sending images back from Mars from spacecraft that went there. The only image that I've seen that ever looked the way it really should look is this set of Chinese images in that link posted just a couple, three days ago in the middle of all the excitement NASA is ginning up over the deployment of Webb. Again, we're getting really interesting data not not propaganda, not what they say about anything, but the data itself is so interesting, coming almost like there was a dual Emily Dickinson Chinese poet running the Chinese space program, giving us the truth, but giving it to us slant. Well, I see that we're almost at the bottom of the hour. It's amazing how an hour can go by so quickly. Um, when we come back, I'm going to introduce our guests. We're going to talk tonight about launching phase two of what has turned from a call to Oumuamua, the first interstellar visitor that we know of to come through the solar system, to now phase two where we are going to from the center of the most ancient observatory on Earth try to broadcast to whoever is sending us in the direction of our own ancient history and origins. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. I think, you know, I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes 
before the internet and before social media and before any of this. Whereas now you can't do that. There's no such thing. So like you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves. People are too frightened. It's like, you know, I want to say something, but if, what if I use the wrong term? But I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch, who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes, was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And, and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting. And they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict. You can't do that. And so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community. But he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end, you'll go, well, I won't say anything then. The fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realize, you know, when you, 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 you're phoning up the police and grassing on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbors and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello, everyone. My name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Aneta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. In your mind you have capacities, you know. To telepath messages through the vest Please close your eyes And to the wonderful strains of Karen Carpenter, a 1970s song that I never thought would, you know, kind of be in such vogue right now. Welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight, where in fact we are in dealing, calling, someone, of interplanetary most extraordinary craft who may or may not be an interplanetary craft uh, the things that showed up over the antenna a few weeks ago notwithstanding but they're certainly sending us intelligent communications they're sending us meaningful numbers and codes and our job I believe with the help of you is try to figure out who the heck are we talking to and how is it relevant to this extraordinary moment in modern terrestrial history where we're literally at the break point? Things can go either way. We need a little help. We are your friends. To be determined. Anyway, my guests this morning, um, in no particular order, are Maria Wheatley, who was our resident expert on uh, dowsing, ancient sacred sites, and of course, uh, relevant to this morning, uh, Stonehenge. I mean, have we got a story for you there. Then we have David Sarita, who spent most of his professional life doing numbers and devolving codes, looking at the Bible, looking at sacred uh, mysteries, sacred texts, decoding, translating, interpolating, and isn't it interesting that an awful lot of what we're getting seems to be kind of in, in, in his um, neighborhood, in his wheelhouse, as they used to say. Then we have Jonathan Womack, who actually has been involved with extraterrestrial communication in a very up-close and personal fashion for several decades. He does out-of-body uh, journeys. He's encountered interesting beings. And all of that experience takes on a whole new meaning when you can literally turn on a radio and somebody at the other end is telling you very important things. 
And last but not least, we've got Thomas uh, uh, Mathers with us. Uh, Thomas is a, an Emmy Award-winning producer. He's written music. He has produced music. Um, he also is into codes and frequencies and sacred geometry and has visited many, many sacred sites all over the world, has lived in Ecuador for many years, is now back in Canada on the western edge of the island of Vancouver. And um, all of these people tonight, oh, let's not forget Keith Morgan, who in addition to all of the metonymic things for the show, is trying to take over for uh, Kinthea's transitioning to other more important things in her life right now. And he's doing a yeoman service. I want to thank publicly Keith for another miracle tonight. Everything is there. Everything works. Everything's posted. Amazing. And then, of course, we've got Karen, who is reiterating again and again and again in, in fiction, in time, in space, decades ago, foreshadowing what we're talking about tonight. Someone is out there, and they are talking to us. I may be boring some of you, but I gotta say that that song, it, it, it just grows on you. Okay, let me introduce everyone. Uh, join the party in no in particular order. David, you are up, presumably. Yeah, I'm, I'm up. I, I want to say something right away. Okay. The explosion at Tonga. The south latitude is 20.601. You're kidding. No, I, I went on Google Earth and I couldn't believe my eyes. So oh when you go my Google, God, the Royal Cubit. The Royal Cubit. That, remember, they sent me in my radio the, both the square of one Royal Cubit at 20.601 inches, which is the Royal Cubit of all Royal Cubits because it resolves the height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt at 480.69 feet to 20.601 times 280 cubits. And then the remains of Mount uh, of Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat, according to Wyatt's crew, was 515 feet. And that comes to 6180.3 inches, which is 20.601 cubits times inches times um, 300, which is what the Bible says. Remember, that's golden number. But what amazes me the most is it's it's almost like remember our response on our radio came before this event at Tonga. So when you go well, wait, wait, to wait. Google, that, that, that's the thing I was going to try to ask you this afternoon because you sent me these numbers yesterday before this numbers, thing had blown its top. No, I sent you the, the Royal Cubit we talked about on the last shows, but probably in the order of. The response to December 24th, 25th, and 26th, somewhere in there in my data is this number, 20.601, which is the most perfect royal cubit there is because it resolves everything perfectly. If you go on Google Earth and you switch your degrees, minutes, and seconds to digital, mm -hmm. so you get rid of degrees, minutes, and seconds, and it just becomes digital – well, it gives it's, you it gives me a <clears throat> sorry it gives you a decimal fraction, right? It gives you a decimal fraction. So twenty point six zero one south latitude is is exactly where this explosion took place, and and I'm beginning this is to think nuts. I know I'm beginning to think, and again, it didn't hurt anybody. Remarkably, you see the size of that explosion from space. I would have thought all of California and Hawaii and Japan would have been wiped out. Because you look at the thing, the, the shock wave, you know, from the satellite imagery, it looks like, you know, one of those killer asteroid movies, you know, the explosion. And everyone's safe, and yet the message is iconically clear, 
20.601. I mean, you move your cursor right to where the explosion is. It's right there. So, again, they didn't post the exact, exact epicenter, but it's right there, 20.601 south latitude. Now, the longitude I'm looking for to see if that showed up in my data. And, and another thing I want to point out right away, because Thomas's, Thomas Mather's item one is so incredible. Here's the first thing that's so incredible about it. There are nine wave peaks here. And there are no wait, 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 let's not do this out of context. <clears throat> what, okay. what, what, so, what, what, what Thomas did was to take the raw data from my digital recording of the chirps on um, uh, Christmas Eve. And John, you know, took the raw data, then he slowed it down. And when we get to John, he'll go through again what he's been doing. He sent the raw data from my computer to Thomas. So this is digital recorded radio to computer to Thomas. And that's what we get in item number one, one. of Thomas's section. Yeah, but did you notice there's nine peaks and there's nine planets in the solar system counting the sun? Mm, okay. I'm not whelmed okay, by that. Not- you know, if there's no direct numerical connection. It's no, a- there's nine There's nine peak points. And Thomas can explain that. So, but Yeah, but, but nine I'm is looking- also part of the general, you know, 27 forms on the, on the, on the general cubic surface, which is the kind of the core hyperdimensional equation. So nine could be several different things. It's And then there's ratios between each of these numbers right, that I, right. I'm already looking okay. at. So, I want to I, I wanna do this very metonymically. But let's go, wait, wait, go back to this thing. This this cannot be overlooked. Well, we're not going this, to. When we get to Thomas, we will have you come back yeah, on. This, hang on, hang on, hang on. I want to go back to, I want you, I need you to go back to explain using item number three in your section is it number three? Uh, yeah, item number three. Okay. Um, this is a video you shot of the frequency meter analyzing the chirps, and then you recording on a on a TV camera, your phone, I guess. Right. What you see on the meter dial, which is a series of numbers. So walk people how you take those numbers, which you can literally walk through frame by frame by frame and see the numbers changing then write them down then look for their square roots their cube roots their squares in other words tell us how you analyze that kind of data from the chirps okay so right there if you look at that video this frequency meter is sensitive from 20 to 21,000 hertz and, and that's basically the human hearing range. But because of background noise, which can be ambient, really low infrasound, most of the chirps are fairly high numbers, most of them. But if you look at the number on the screen and you take the square root of 424.40, that's 20.601, which is the Royal Cuban, mm-hmm. which is the location of the Tonga explosion in south latitude. Right, so the you it's it's accurate to two decimals. So if I take twenty point six zero one inches on my calculator and square it, which just means times itself, it's four two four point four zero one two zero one. You can't see the one two zero one on my meter because it's or it's not accurate to mm-hmm. that many decimals. But that's perfection, like unbelievable. And they also, what's happening on this meter, is. As it's hearing the chirps from the radio, and I'm recording it, I can run back through the video and pull out all my peaks. You can also see in the picture, you see the green light, which is on the meter, the lower, lower part of the image of the meter where my finger is. The green light is on, which means the frequency is coming in. If the green light wasn't on, that would be some, you know... uh, low ambient noise so the the fact that then again they sent me the square of two royal cubits which is the most common measurement in the great pyramid in over 15 places peter lemisuri wrote that they they use the measurement two royal cubits which is one of the reasons 
the the ancient Egyptians tried to build a two royal cubit rod. So again, was this a per, this is so sophisticated because the fact that the Tonga explosion is twenty point six zero one south latitude, its epicenter <laughs> is is. is in a, in a very safe way, because there's nobody really hurt by this thing. I mean, I don't know how that this thing didn't destroy the world, but it, it seems almost like forces were at play for it. Well, if, if we look at your item number four, which Keith just posted, uh, the shockwave by the, yeah. of the Tonga explosion captured on a satellite looking down, um, this thing is extraordinary. And you're, you're right, it's a miracle that nobody was, you know, hurt let alone killed, and the and the tsunami expected on the West Coast did not occur, thank goodness. But this is somebody staking, you know, putting a stake in the ground and predicting, you know, this well before, because this is part of a sequence you recorded days ago. Yeah, no, this this is part of a sequence I, rec I recorded over two weeks ago. I mean, ah, whatever ah. the December 24th, 25th, 26th okay, was. Okay, which is part of our Christmas transmission so again, weekend. If, okay, hang if on. This, let, me, let, me, let me insert yeah. another important question. Mm -hmm. Whoever sent us those numbers, remember there was a very classic uh, Victorian scientist named uh, Sir Arthur Eddington who told his Victorian scientist colleagues, you know, gentlemen, you do not have a science until you can express it in numbers. We are drowning in numbers. And yet when you start to wade into the huge pile of numbers someone is sending us, they're not just random numbers, they're incredibly meaningful numbers. And now we can prove they sent us weeks before the event the the long the the latitude of this Tonga explosion. So, question: Did the same guys who sent us the numbers trigger the explosion, or did the guys who sent us the numbers try to warn us of other guys who would try to trigger using this hyperdimensional physics technology an explosion? In other words, that's the dichotomy. That's the big question. Well, remember the. You know, the God of the prophets in the Bible used the 20.601 inch cubit in Noah's Ark because that's the measurement of the remains on Mount Ararat. So, mm -hmm. so who, when we say who, now we know it's not some somebody fiddling around who's a massive genius sending me all these numbers. Oh my God, I'm looking at this possibly... video. Look at the shockwave on this satellite image. I know, the shockwave is, when you see the shockwave, it reminds me of like, you know, one of those end of the world movies where a meteor comes and hits Holy. the earth. Like, like the end of the movie you're, you're, we're talking about, you know, don't look up. Don't look right? up, you know, yes. Yeah. It's just like that, except nothing happens. And it's like, the is this... Is the, or remember following? The, I didn't know twenty point six zero one was going to be a location <laughs> on the grid of Earth because it's the royal cubit. But here it is in action. And then I got a whole bunch of other numbers that point to southern Egypt somewhere, and I know exactly where, but I'm not going to say exactly where. So are those predictions that something is going to be unveiled in 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 those locations because? Even though we're looking at, okay, remember, they sent me the speed of light with the decimal moved over. And note that the speed of gravity also is the same as speed of light and also fluctuates ever so slightly. So I'll maybe tell you what, for people sending, who are dying to know what we're talking about because they've never heard the transmissions, here are some of the early bursts you recorded from the December 4th um, events. Okay, so let me play this here. Mm -hmm. This is really incredible. This is the original. Slowed down. And this is when it's slowed down. <laughs> I don't know why that makes me laugh, because I, I, I feel intelligence in there. And this... Well, we don't have to feel intelligence. We just look at the damn numbers. I know, and and, and the fact that the Tonga is one of our numbers <laughs> is okay, folks. Is it time to wake up yet? <laughs> More than are we there yet? 
More than okay. Let me let me dump out. I remember of this. I, when I was a kid, okay. sitting in the back of the car, going to Texas with my stepfather and my four b- brothers and my mom, and it was a hundred and something degrees outside, and we said, "Are we there yet?" Um, <laughs> folks, th- this is a wake up call beyond all wake up calls because what happened today is spot on with what these. That is a transmission response, and it's got the fingerprint of you know who. Um, on it so it's time to wake up and and if we look where we are at in history you know we can clearly see what's what's going on here is is it's time to pay attention because the other numbers i got are locations on the earth and it's interesting richard because if i switch my numbers between latitude and longitude I've also got locations in the very tip of South Africa. So I've got hmm. I've got actually got multiple locations. I'm not going to give out ex- cuz I got this down to Oh the no 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 do not let the bad guys zip in there and take no, away I'm not going to tell you. I've got it down to the square foot. Oh wow. But, wow. Oh yeah, because my digital series in 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 So you're Google telling me now we have to raise money for <clears throat> an expedition? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh great! With camels and camels and water, <clears throat> and uh, it just gets and better and better and, and better. Okay, <laughs> all right. I want to I want to bring Thomas in. Thomas, yeah. you've done some really interesting work here. Obviously, you put uh, you put uh, David over the moon with your prelim results. Talk about what your items represent, and then what where we can go next. Okay, so well, basically, I mean, uh, John. John had sent me uh, some of the clips that we were reviewing on last week's show. And there was a couple of segments of the clips that when I listened to it live on the show, um, it sounded like some of these segments sounded like reverse, uh, like a reverse audio. So uh, we were trying to do it live on the show, but um, the initial plan was really just to get those original, uh, the original segments from John and then just sort of play around with them, reverse them and sort of do what I was, you know, thinking of in the, and during the show. Um, That being said, in each one of John's uh, segments, he had original parts of, and these were taken from your uh, transmissions, uh, Richard. So this, you know, for the for the listeners out there, these were taken from a line out um, directly recorded. So this was not sampled through a microphone or through a speaker. This was direct a direct line out. So I set up a couple of different uh, analyzers, and if you take a look. <clears throat> Uh, if you take a look at my my items, um, you can sort of see that I've got a couple. I'm I'm displaying the audio I'm using for for people at home. Um, just Ableton Ableton Live. Uh, this is on my newer studio computer, so I don't have some of the other plugins that I've got on my my older computer. So these are just stock uh, stock leveling level meters uh, and spectrum analyzers. Uh, that come packaged with uh, with Ableton. So what I did was I, I've got them sort of analyzing different sort of block uh, segments. Um, so it's just different ways of interpreting the sound. Now, the interesting thing is is that when I went to graph it using a, uh, a, a instead of a line graph sort of like a, a signs graph you get these like a whole bunch of vertical lines mm-hmm. so you can kind of see you can see each vertical line is is representing different frequencies now what i noticed was when i was playing back the original audio because there's i i have um some of the some of the sounds reversed and you can kind of hear it's interesting just to kind of hear the dynamics of each one of the chirps played forward played backwards uh john had reduced the uh the speed uh by um at most 200 percent 
Yeah, um, I and think another... John has actually reversed some of these. We're going to hear the reversals I think tonight. He's done, yeah, so I mean, I'll let because those were John because those were John's sounds. Um, I think we'll just let him sort of uh, yep. play the ones yep. that were reversed and things like that. So there's no need to kind of duplicate. So we can concentrate really on what I was able to what I was able to notice because I think this is actually kind of the most uh, the most interesting thing. I love visual so, graphs. I keep saying I'm a visual yeah. person. That's why I'm a writer. I like to see things yeah. written down. I like to see graphics. I like to see graphs. This is a stunning printout. Exactly. So the so the interesting thing and and maybe what I'll do is for for next week uh, what I can do is I can capture I'll capture the video segment so that you can actually see these spikes. Mm. Um, I don't want people to I don't want people to take my word for it. I want them to see this with their own eyes because it's something that you would be, you'll be able to see. You don't have to uh, be somebody that's very experienced looking at audio waveforms. Um, I, I have been doing this. Well, the first thing to a non-audio person looking at this that this tells me is. This is an intelligently generated signal. It's not noise. Well, here's the, but this is the, this is the interesting aspect of it. So, um, I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but I'll explain sort of what I witnessed and what I'll capture onto into video so that people can see uh, for next week. So, in John's sounds, which he'll when he, I guess, uh, it's his turn to sort of go through and and do his analysis. Um, there's in how he has uh, comprised his samples is part of the original played normally so this is directly from yours and then it modified so slowed down pitched down or that so you hear the original and then right after the original you hear the slow down pitch down and, and he can go into detail with that however i noticed this with the originals when i went over to the sign uh to the sign graph so where you're seeing these individual lines going up. So if you can imagine the the uh, the 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 waveform line, the high one, is being that is kind of the high point of the signals. So that's the peak, and all of those lines are moving you know, are moving up and down into that peak. Now what I noticed was when I was zooming in, and it was only higher than 2,000 um, 2,000 hertz. So it wasn't – I didn't see any of these very pokey peaks lower than 2,000 hertz. It was – it started at 2,000 hertz. And in this analyzer, which I don't know what the maximum was, but I think the furthest peak that I was able to see was actually above 21,000 um, uh, 21, hertz or 21 kilohertz. Now, the interesting thing is is that that's actually beyond – um, the audible range, and it's also beyond what most um, uh, speakers and or sound hertz, equipment. And which is named people. after the physicist, is really a cycle. So it's twenty-one hertz, kilohertz is twenty-one thousand cycles per second. Ex exactly. But here is the interesting thing. We'll just get straight to the point. Each one of these chirps is not identical. Mm. This is not so. The so the if you take a look at the waveform. It's not the exact same each chirp, okay? The strange thing is, is that these little spikes that were very noticeable when I was looking at through the analyzer for each chirp were identical. They weren't moving over by like, you know, a, a decimal point of a, of, a, of a hertz. Like they were very consistent. So I, I saw these and when I saw them, I'm like, this is sort of why would like what would be causing this? And then at first I thought, okay, well maybe this is an artifact because maybe this is something from uh, John's process. But then I was going, well wait a second, that doesn't make any sense because that's from the original, the original noise. So each one of these chirps had an identical sort of pattern to it. Now with this particular analyzer, okay, we've got thirty seconds to the top of the hour. Hold it there. My guests this morning too numerous to mention. We will mention them throughout the morning. I mean, we're doing more analyses of what we got. And what we got is what we should not get. Big question again is from whom and why? And did the folks that sent us a warning two weeks ago about Tonga, were they warning us? Did they know someone else was going to do it? Why did whoever did this, did they do it to pick Tonga? 
which turns out to be exactly at the royal cubit length that David's getting in the numbers. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.